0: Good morning again. Um, as I said earlier, my name is Tom Sylvia, the associate pastor here. And normally it is John up here as well, but as you heard, we have a lot of men who are on a men's retreat. And so they'll be making their way back today. And John will once again come back for and be before you at this pulpit starting next week. So definitely if you're new, I want to invite you next week so you can hear Brother John preach as well. Uh, One of the things we do is we do expositional preaching here where we look at the text and we say, what does this text mean? How does it tell us about who Jesus is? We need to know what the author's main point is. We want to know it. And so we, that's why we do expositional preaching and we pick a book of the Bible and we slowly work through it. So we've been working through the book of Mark. And if you have your Bibles, I want to invite you to open up your Bibles to Mark chapter 2, verse 23. And we're going to go into chapter 3, verse 6. If you do not have a Bible, then there's going to be a blue one that's in front of you. And we're going to be on page 996 in that Bible. So go ahead and get your Bibles and open it up with me. If you don't have a Bible, then the words will be on the screen. And in keeping with our tradition here at East Shore, I want to invite everybody who can and is able to stand as we read God's Word. Mark chapter 2, starting in verse 23. One Sabbath he was going through the grain fields, and as they made their way, his disciples began to pluck heads of grain. And the Pharisees were saying to him, Look, why are they doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? And he said to them, Have you ever read what David did when he was in need and was hungry? He and those who were with him, how he entered the house of God in the time of Abathar the high priest and ate the bread of the presence, which it is not lawful for any but the priest to eat, and also gave it to those who were with him. And he said to them, The Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. Verse 1, chapter 3. Again he entered the synagogue, and a man was there with a withered hand. And they watched Jesus to see whether he would heal him on the Sabbath, so that they might accuse him. And he said to the man with the withered hand, Come here. And he said to them, Is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save life or to kill? But they were silent. And he looked around at them with anger, grieved at their hardness of heart, and said to the man, Stretch out your hand. He stretched it out, and his hand was restored. And the Pharisee went out and immediately held counsel with the Herodians against him. How to destroy him? You may be seated. Let me pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for sending your son who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf. Thank You, Lord, for sending Him in the form of a baby, in the form of a man, so that He can walk this earth and show us what it is to love, what it is to obey Your law, what it is to show grace and mercy and kindness to one another, what it is, Lord, to worship You. Thank You, Lord, for being true and righteous and our guide in the midst of trouble sorrow thank you father for just giving us a rich example in doing that for us lord as we are here to glean from your word help us all of us here just to give us our mind open up our minds so that we can hear your words so that we can understand them and uh, leave rejoicing because we have understood what you have spoken to us. We we ask all this in your Son's name. Amen. Amen. All right, so let me present to you a little road map of where we're going to go this morning. Uh, In this passage, the main point is how a hard heart, in verse 5 of chapter 3, abuses the gifts of God, specifically the gift of the Sabbath day or the fourth commandment. So that's the point of these two uh, passages. And I'm going to divide the sermon into two sections, two parts. So the first part is going to be an exposition of the fourth commandment, the Sabbath day. And then the second part, we're going to look at the hardness of a heart and what are the characteristics of a hard heart that are presented to us in this passage. So there might, there's going to be a little bit of a hard transition at the end of part one. So with that... Now that you know where we're going, let's begin part one, the Sabbath. So as as we were just reading, as I was just spoken, both these issues that Jesus is being spoken about against is pertaining to the Sabbath command. In verses chapter 2, 23 through 28, the Sabbath issue is the disciples picking grain in the uh, fields. And then in chapter 3, 1 through 6, the Sabbath issue has to do with healing a non-lethal physical element on the Sabbath. Non-lethal, that's key. We'll get to that later. So why are these even issues at all? I mean, eating food is good. Especially healing a withered hand is good. So how can Jesus be accused of doing anything bad? Well to get us to figure out these answers, we need to have some context. And to do that, we're going to read the fourth commandment from Exodus. So Exodus 28-11. through Remember the Sabbath day, to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work. But the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, or your son, or your daughter, or your male servant, or your female servant, or your livestock, or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in the six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea, and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Now the commandment is patterned after the creation account in Genesis. Let me read it Genesis chapter 2, verses 1 through 3. Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the host of them. And on the seventh day, God finished His work that He had done. And He rested on the seventh day from all His work that He had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it God rested from all His work and all that He had done in creation. Now in reading this, this commandment or the creation ordinance, nothing in it rings heavy, nothing in those verses rings burdensome, and I mean, really, I read those commandments and nothing makes me want to say, oh, that commandment. It's actually a very pleasing commandment. I get a sense of refreshment and peace that exudes from it. Like, oh, I want this commandment. I mean, the Sabbath that we just read is a holy day. I mean, the Christians in our personal walk, what do we to strive for but personal holiness, to be holy as our God is holy. So therefore, this day is to be looked forward to. We want a holy day. And it's also uniquely blessed by God. And who here doesn't want something that is blessed by God? I would argue that, I I mean, that most people in this world are seeking that which is blessed by God or a divine being. So for example, Muslims all over the world make their annual Hajj in the folk Islam world. It's a Hajj for a special Barakah. That's their word for blessing. And then they're seeking this Baraka all throughout their daily lives. They need more of this blessing, more of this blessing, more of this blessing. That's what the folk Islam world is all centered around. Then we have Catholics. What do Catholics love? Well, they want their holy or blessed relics. Frederick III of Saxony, he's the official who kidnapped the reformer Martin Luther in the 15th, 16th century over 500 years ago to protect him from being murdered. Well, Frederick of Saxony had collected over 15,000 relics in his home. Why did he do such a thing? Why was he so adamant to get the hair of Jesus' chin displayed in his home? Because these items were blessed. And the Catholics continue the practice today. People want these blessed relics Okay, Because it would be just considered an honor to have something of that value in their home. Pagan religions, why do they sacrifice animals? Or in some cultures, they sacrifice their children. Why do they do this? Why are they offering these things up to their gods? For one reason, to receive a special blessing from the false gods. They want that blessing from the higher power. So... Everyone wants this idea of a blessed object. And our wonderful God didn't give us a blessed object, but He gave us a blessed day. So why wouldn't we want it? We don't have to offer ritual sacrifices. We get to experience the day. And it's not just one day a year or one day in a lifetime, but it's a weekly blessing, a Sabbath day every week a day to set aside all our earthly duties for us to worship and find our rest in God. We're going to be worshiping and praising God for all eternity, and we long for that time to come. And you know what? We're still waiting, but the Sabbath day gives that eternal reality the ability for us to experience that in the now on this side of heaven. All the other days we get to navigate all the concerns and worries of the world, but on this day, this Sabbath day, rest, worship. Oh. Well, we can think that all these other days, excuse me, we can think that this day can be a little heavy, though, a little, little too much for us. And we're going to get to this in a minute, but there's this idea that the Sabbath day isn't for us. And when we begin to think of it, there's a little bit of heaviness, like, oh, relief that we don't have to observe it as New Testament Christians. Well, I think Jesus' point kind of counteracts that. In verse 27, He says, "...the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. It was a gift to you and I from God above to be enjoyed, and that has always been its purpose." This burden of this idea of being a whole list of more about don'ts than what it is supposed to be about worshiping doesn't make sense to me. Okay, we hear these stories about people observing it in the past, and it just it brings a little bit of stress to my mind. And one of the examples is Laura Ingalls Wilder. Ah, my family loves the Little House in the Prairies book. We've read them all, and I spoke to the scholar Evie Sylvia about their ability to worship or to honor the Sabbath day. And what they would do is they would go to church, and they would come home from church, and then they would sit in the wooden chairs for the rest of the day, six to eight hours, right there where the dinner table was because they prepared their food the day before, and they left the food on the table, and then they would sit there, and then when dinner came they ate the food cold because heating the food, warming the food, would have been work. Playing would have been considered work and would have been disobeying the Sabbath. So they had to sit in a chair, the whole day to honor the command those are the stories we hear about that and in fact i hear those stories and i begin to want to search the scriptures do some hermeneutical gymnastics and some exposition so i don't have to obey that command because that's rough i do not want to sit in a chair for 6 hours no no and you know what i will give i will take that jesus is actually turning the idea of the Sabbath and all of its burdens on its head when he is speaking to the Pharisees in these two sections. Because the Pharisees, they were adding burdens to the Sabbath day. They were making it very heavy and hard to obey. So he's confronted. The disciples pick this grain off this wheat. And the Pharisee says, why are they doing what is illegal, unlawful on this day? How does Jesus respond to them? Well, He gives them a story in verses 25 and 26. He gives them the story about their greatest king, King David. David and his troops were on the run and were hungry. And the priests had prepared the bread of presents, which the bread of presents in the Old Testament consists of 12 loaves of bread to be offered up to the Lord as a food sacrifice. 12 loaves of bread representing the 12 tribes of Israel. And instead of... Excuse me, instead of offering it to the Lord on this particular day, it was eaten by David and his men, which per Leviticus 24 not 8 through 9, only the priests were to eat this bread. However, they were not punished. They were not punished for disobedience for eating the bread that was set apart for the Lord. Why weren't they punished? Well, it's pretty simple cuz God cares for his people. He cares for you and I. David and his men were starving, and they needed food. And guess what? There happened to be food right there. So the choice between David is, do we starve or do we eat? Does God want us to starve or does God want us to eat? What should we do? The answer is quite clear. You eat. Matthew Henry has a little quote. He says, ritual observances must give way to moral obligations. They didn't disobey God, David and his men, because the showbread was a temporary ceremonial law, a law specific to the Old Testament priests prior to the coming and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Okay, Now, after Christ's resurrection, we have been made into a kingdom of priests. We no longer have to offer up the showbread. The great showbread has been offered up himself. It was a temporary time. For a temporary season. God cares more about his children than these temporary ceremonies. So too should the Pharisees care more about the welfare of others than their sacrilege traditions, especially on the Sabbath day where it was meant for celebration and worship. So that so that the Pharisees were abusing that day, allowing their traditions to be God's law when God's law says no. That is not the case. So what does this mean for us? What what does it mean about us as New Testament Christians to obey this Sabbath law? Because we're not going to be consumed with do's and don'ts of our traditions about how to obey the Sabbath command. If we're more concerned with all the do's and don'ts, then we're missing the point of the command. The command's purpose is to enrich our hearts to Christ, to direct our minds towards Christ, and to motivate us to work for Christ. So what do we do? How do we honor this commandment? Now you might be thinking that the the Sabbath day is the seventh day of the week, which means for us to obey this Sabbath command, we would have to cease work on Saturday. However... The Sabbath is the 7th, but that is not what the Bible teaches us as New Testament Christians. That of course was true for the Old Testament church. They had to worship on the Sabbath, on that Saturday, on the 7th day. But something changed with the advent of Christ. He says, I am Lord even of the Sabbath. And what the fourth commandment calls the Sabbath, we call the Lord's day. In the Old Testament, Jesus and the plan of salvation was only revealed in part, but in the New Testament it is clearly seen. The Sabbath was intended to point the Old Testament saints forward to the end of the week where they were to rest from their labor and worship God. It is similar to the Christian life and where we labor in this world for the good works of God and the building up of His kingdom, looking forward to the day when we are called home to an eternal rest to eternally worship God. However, the Lord of the Sabbath, Jesus Christ, has revealed Himself. What clouds were present in the Old Testament have dissipated to allow the rays of Christ to shine. We now give it the proper name, the Lord's Day. It's called the Lord's Day because that is the day He rose from the grave, ushering in the new covenant, the remission of our sins. The old covenant we looked We looked forward to that day of rest rest and worship. And then when we got to the day of rest and worship, we got to look back at what the Lord allowed us to do. In the new covenant, though, we start the week off with a day of rest and worship. And we get to look towards the week. We get to look forward at what we get to do for the Lord. It's a new week, a new creation. So what do we do on the Sabbath or Lord's Day? Well, I'm going to give you the same answer that the Protestants have been answering with since the Reformation. We do works of necessity, works of mercy, and works of worship. That is our answers. We do works of necessity, meaning such as eating, like the disciples did as he plucked the grain from the stocks in the field. We fix our cars. We repair things that are broken in our house. We make food. We enjoy the company of others. These are necessary. We do the things that must get done. We do works of mercy, such as healing. What does Jesus do on the Sabbath in the next section that we're about to discuss? He heals the withered hand. We care for the needs of others, which Jesus loves to do. We serve the church. We build roofs for one another. We fix one another's car. We change oils for one another. We care for the sick for one another. Sometimes we have to miss church to care for a loved one, because God wants mercy, so we do works of mercy. Then we also do works of worship. We go to church. We listen from the we listen from the words of the Lord of the Sabbath Himself. We are refreshed and we are rested. From His Word, we are rejuvenized, motivated to live out the weak for His glory. We need the strength from His Word to live the weak because sin and the world will conquer us otherwise. Ultimately, we enjoy the gift that it is, rest in Christ. That is how you obey the fourth commandment. Now I've got to address this. I give you this, and I've got to address probably one of the most common questions that comes after you say these things. Well, Tom, what do you say when you say works of necessity, works of mercy, works of worship? What about fun activities such as sports, games, TV? Fill in the blank. What about these activities? Can we do these? Is this, does do engaging with us those disobey this commandment? Well, my answer is simple. Don't get legalistic about this. It means to rest and to worship. That is the essence of the commandment. And I will tell you, if those activities are preventing you from rest and worship, then yes, you may be falling short of the commandment. But if they are not, then I'm going to say, enjoy them and enjoy God. If you consider the Sabbath command to be an annoyance or a burden or brings about some type of anxiety, then I'm telling you, your understanding of this command needs to be corrected. J.C. Ryle says, How can a man expect to enjoy heaven if he finds Sunday, the Sabbath day, the Lord's day, to be a dull, gloomy, tiresome day? And I'll end the section, this part, with with a statement from John in 1 John. Five, his commandments are not burdensome. The Sabbath command is a gift, so enjoy it, even as New Testament Christians. So now let's transition, hard stop. That was the exposition on the Sabbath. Now let's look at the hardness of the Pharisees' hearts, because their hardness is being directed towards Christ, and we're going to pay attention to what becomes of them. Use their attitudes to diagnose our own hearts. So look with me at verse 5. And he, Jesus, looked around at them, the Pharisees, with anger, grieved at their hardness of heart, and said to the man, Stretch out your hand. He stretched it out, and his hand was restored. Jesus' anger was directed towards one thing, not the Pharisees, but their hard hearts. His anger was directed to the sin that they had allowed to consume them. In Jesus' anger, he knew he needed to give them a public lesson and immediately told the man with the withered hand to stretch out his hand to be healed. What a lesson! That action of healing this man brought to the Pharisees' mind the immediate idea to put Jesus to death in verse 6. A hard heart is no laughing matter. And if you are a Christian in this room, you have been rescued from that heart of stone. But beware, our sin seeks to callous our hearts once again, and we must work to keep them tender. I'm going to give you three observations and use them as a diagnosis, as a mirror to diagnose if any of your part is beginning to harden. So I'm going to, here's my three observations. My first observation is a hard heart corrupts the good things of God. A hard heart corrupts the good things of God. Jesus was accused twice of breaking the Sabbath laws. Not the biblical Sabbath laws, but the Pharisaical tradition. You see, the Pharisees, throughout their tradition, they would add to the Mosaic law. The Mosaic law being that most of that Old Testament that we read. And some of, in, in their minds, the Pharisees, a new situation would arise. And the Pharisees were like, oh, let's look at God's law, how we need to deal with it. But guess what? They couldn't find an answer. They were reading God's law incorrectly. And so they were adding laws to the Scripture. They kept adding and adding and adding and adding. This happens in our own government. If we were to compare our laws today with the laws of 1780, I'm sure there's going to be a lot, lot more. Okay? So, In this Pharisaical tradition they had to observe the Mosaic law to a T. They could not disobey because righteousness came through obedience. So they added, and they added, and they added, and they ventured far from obedience and into disobedience and brought a whole nation along with them. The Pharisaic tradition had 39 categories of Sabbath laws. Not 39 laws but categories, and within those categories are more laws. Some of, the, some of them are you cannot carry things. You remember the story of them getting upset with the man for picking up his mat. Well, carrying things would be work, which is sin. You cannot do anything that causes or make fire. That would be sin if you begin to heat things up pertaining to cooking. You cannot write or make any mental calculations because that's work. So you don't want to do that. You cannot tie any type of knots. So there is no tying your shoes for a Jew. I remember my Hebrew professor telling us about Israel when he would go. And they on the Sabbath day in Israel, they have programmed the elevators to stop at every floor so that they don't have to press the button. Because pressing the button is work. That's too much. They're only allowed to walk three-fourths of a mile that Sabbath day. So many of them are counting their steps because it's work. You know, I hear those, and we've read the commands. It doesn't line up. I, I read these laws, and oppressive is the word that comes to my mind after reading that list. There's no gift in any of that as I read that. I don't think you can call it a gift with so many strings attached. Why did they add so much to his law? Why did they make it such a burden? Well. First, because they didn't understand justification by faith alone through Christ alone. They, they thought that justification came through works of the law. So they had to work. They had to put in the effort. And at any point, they made the mistake, condemned. That is a frightful thing, to be dependent on your own actions. And secondly, they did this because a hard heart doesn't understand grace and freedom. What do I mean by that? A hard heart seeks to be self-justified and there can only be one way to be justified in a self-centered person's eyes. Their way is the only way. If they see another person practicing their faith differently from them, they're going to begin to cast judgment and they're going to, if they have the authority, they're going to begin to tidy up the laws so everything looks just like them. Because they are the ones justified, not the other. Instead of grace and freedom, it moves towards legalism. Danny Aiken, few things are more destructive, seductive, and deceptive to a true and vital relationship with God than the deadly poison of legalism. Watch out for legalism. Watch out that you do not allow your personal preferences to bind the conscience of other believers when the scriptures have clearly allowed for diversity. My second observation, a hard heart allows bitterness to blind us. Look with me at uh, verse verse 2 of chapter 3, and they the Pharisees watched Jesus to see whether he would heal the withered man on the Sabbath that so that they might accuse him. That verb watched in the Greek is in the imperfect tense, which means that the Habitual practice of the Pharisees was that of watching Jesus with such an intensity to make a mistake. They're sitting on the sidelines, salivating at the opportunity to scorn Him with their words before the public. And in this case, they're waiting for Jesus to do a good deed. If Jesus takes care of this man's hand, they'll get him. That's what they thought. And do you hear the absurdity of what I'm saying in that statement? These men, these Pharisees, are they, they see this man with this withered hand. And now by withered, you can think of a hand that's like stuck to the person's side, short. We don't know. But that's this man. He's got this. And they're looking at him, and they would rather see him in pity than him to be healed. And they could care less about the man or his issues. They're just focused on another man and watching to see if he'll do good to him. That's what a hard heart does. (laughs) This man has the opportunity to be forever relieved and healed of his conditions, and the Pharisees could care less. (laughs) And their preference is to keep the withered arm. A hard heart allows bitterness and hatred towards an individual to blind a person from seeing, hearing, rejoicing, or being a part of God's good work. Beware of a hard heart. Is there someone in your life that you don't like? Is there another brother or sister in Christ that you have bitterness towards and if they do a good thing, you're not going to give them any credit because you're consumed with the bitterness towards them? You're constantly watching them, critiquing their every move or decision they make, waiting for them to mess up to justify your bitterness? That's a hard heart. With the elections being this Tuesday, I thought this analogy would be appropriate. If your if opposing political party wins, makes a good decision, enacts a great bill, or makes the best points in a debate, are you able to give them credit where credit is due? Or is your dislike towards the candidate that greater than that you cannot give them any kind of praise? If you answered in the negative, towards any of those two examples, then it is likely you have the beginnings of a hard heart, or it is possible that you have been calloused for some time. God is working, and He will use people. He is looking at their hearts. And He is working through fellow brothers and sisters. He is working through our governments. Then do not allow bitterness to consume you and prevent you from celebrating what God is doing. My third observation A hard heart angers and grieves God. Look at verse 5. And he, Jesus, looked around at them with anger, grieved at their hardness of heart. Jesus was angry at the Pharisees because they would rather have evil reign than allow the Lord to heal. And also at the same time, though, he was able to differentiate between the person and the sin. Angered by their actions, but grieved by their hardness of heart. Thank you, Lord. A hard heart is a frightful possession. Zechariah 7.12 They made their hearts diamond-hard, lest they should hear the law and the words that the Lord of hosts had sent by His Spirit through the former prophets. Therefore, great anger came from the Lord of hosts. We see the hard heart wage war against God in the Scriptures none other than the pharisees and versus god <laughs> there was a battle that took place moses was sent by god to tell the pharaoh to say let my people go let them leave egypt from this bondage of slavery what did the pharaoh say no and after each time it was the hardness of the heart there's a war there's a battle That's intentionally being displayed between the Pharisees and the exodus, between Pharisees and God. So when the Pharisees refused, the hardness of heart, okay, it's a warning. Nothing's happening. Pharisee says no. Okay, we're going to give them that. It's it's just, it could possibly be a a false alarm. There could be no meat to the request. But then God sends his first plague, turning all the water in the land into blood. And what does the Pharaoh say? No. And his heart was hardened. Now, if there's any time where you're like call, trying to call a bluff and it's the first time, you get it. But then when something like that follows on the second time, you would think that any sane person would be like, oh, okay, my pe- your people can go. <laughs> that doesn't happen. Not with a hard heart. And then instead we get a second plague, a third plague, a fourth, a fifth, a sixth, a seventh, an eighth, and a ninth plague, all of which are destroying, destroying Egypt. Chaos. What does the hard heart say to this? Yes, of course. Look what's all this done. No. He still says no. A hard heart says no. And then God's like, okay, I've now told you nine times. Here comes the 10th plague. And then all the firstborn were taken. What does the Pharaoh then do? He relents. He lets the people go. But what about the hard heart? What happens to the hard heart? It doesn't soften. In fact, it gets even harder. Because you see, all the people definitely left. All the Israelites began to wander and to leave. But what happened shortly after they left? The Pharaoh mustered his army gathered his troops, says, charge, and he goes right after them. (laughs) Ten times the hard heart was blind and couldn't see. And he charges after them, and they get to the Red Sea. The sea is parted. They can't even go through. They're watching the Israelites go through. They're stuck. God's like not letting them go. They get through on dry ground. Then all of a sudden they get there, and they're like, sea's open, charge. They go into the sea, Water's come upon all of them and they're all gone. The, prince, the cartoon prince of Egypt says that the Pharaoh was left alive. And that's not what the Bible says. They were all gone because a hard heart refused to repent and refused to believe. And he brought a whole garrison, a whole army along with them. A hard heart is very much an evil thing. And it will cause harm to yourself and to those who follow you. <laughs> A hard heart thinks that it will get revenge on God one day. (laughs) But what a foolish thought. A hard heart wages war on a holy God, and that is one battle no one but God alone will win. A hard heart is a result of sin. Thomas Manton says, God said to Pharaoh, let my people go. To us, he says, let your sin go. And He's been warning us and warning us and warning us and warning us. And how many in this room have repented of your sins? But you continue to ignore the warnings. Do not give in to your sin, church. Your sin is crouching at your door desiring for you to give in to it. And you must not, because sin will harden your heart. Our sin, our hard hearts may anger God, but no, it also grieves Him. Okay, His wisdom, He looks upon each one of us with compassion and sees our actions as well as our souls. And He knows within each one of us there is a hardened, calloused heart that has our souls trapped and we are in desperate need of a great rescue. He sees that we're suffocating from those hard hearts. And He has endeavored to cut them, to set us free. Exodus 36, 24-26. I will take you from the nations, I will gather you from all the countries and bring you into your own land. I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean from all your uncleanness and from all your idols. I will cleanse you and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you and I will remove the heart of stone and from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. Wow. That is our salvation. That's our gospel, brothers and sisters. We were stuck. We were, there was nothing we can do. Our hard heart, if we were in an ocean, was so heavy, we sink to the bottom. There's no somebody throwing a life raft out into the ocean for us to cling on and God saying, look, I gave you a life raft or this or that. We're at the bottom with the heaviness of this hard heart. There's only one that can rescue us, and that is Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ. He doesn't pull us off the surface of the ocean. He digs, he he dives deep because he knows how far buried we are. And that's where he rescues us from the pit, from despair. And he has come. He sees the terrible plague that no amount of human labor can heal. And he knows he must come. So he sent his son in the form of man, the form of a baby, born of a virgin. For our sins, for our hard hearts, to give us new hearts, to soften our hearts, and we can worship Him. Wow. Wow. There's more that could be said about the woes of a hard heart in this, this text, but time prevents me from going. I actually had seven observations originally, and I had to cut it down. So, a great discussion with your spouse, with your family devotions, with HFG, is reading over this text. Discuss the, the, the hardness of heart of the Pharisees and what does this mean? What does this look like for us today? And let me give you a word if you're here and you're an unbeliever in this room and you have not committed yourself to Christ. The warnings are all over. There's warning after warning after warning saying, repent, repent of your sins. But you are blinded by your hard heart. I'm telling you to repent and believe. God is calling you. Answer him. Answer him. So I'm going to just encourage every and each and every one of us to continue to seek the Lord in prayer, to be humbling us each and every day because we are battling a hard heart. Enjoy the rest in the Sabbath command and allow it to give you just a refreshing dose of grace and kindness because we need it because the world won't give it to us. Let me pray. Father, thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord, that there is worldly chaos all around us and that we, Lord, have a set time, that we are free of that and we can focus all of our attention on you and worship you, the God of order, the God who has cut our hearts And we are free of this stone and given this heart of flesh where now you have written your laws on our hearts. Lord, thank you for rescuing us from such a weight, a burden. Lord, we need to be reminded and humbled each and every day. Lord, reveal to us where our sin is coming back to seek and to control our our hearts, and Lord, May we be able to repent, confess, and through your power, through your strength, through your mercy, through your spirit, allow our hearts to be softened again. Thank you, Lord, for all your goodness. We pray all this in your son's name. Amen.